Christ Community Church, hope that your Sunday is off to a great start. I hate that we can't be with you this morning, but I am coming to you from our living room today. If you hear a crash or someone yelling upstairs, it's probably just one of my kids. So we'll just keep moving right on through that. Um, Thankfully, we are doing pretty well. Um, Hopefully, Lord willing, we'll be out of quarantine soon and be, be able to be back with you guys soon. Hey, today is Palm Sunday. Now, maybe you're not familiar with Palm Sunday or or what it's all about, but Palm Sunday begins what Christians have historically called Holy Week. It's this week when we remember that Jesus entered into Jerusalem and we join together with Christians from all over the world and through all throughout history to celebrate Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem and his subsequent death and resurrection. So these events that we're going to be talking about today in John chapter 12 are not merely peripheral historical events. These events literally changed the world. They have changed the lives of billions of people, and they have the power to change your life as well. Because in this passage today, Jesus turns everything upside down. He turns our concept of God upside down. He turns our concept of religion upside down. He turns our concept of life itself upside down. In this passage today, we're going to meet the king. We're going to meet the true king who is coming in to inaugurate his kingdom. The one who shows us what true greatness looks like and who calls us to follow his example. Jesus came to change the world and he came to change your life. So let's get into the text today and let's see how he does that. John chapter 12, starting at verse 12, and I'm going to read up through verse 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb went to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now in this passage today, we're going to see three things about this week that changed the world. And three things that will change your life as well if you really come to terms with them. We're going to see the unexpected king. We're going to see the universal kingdom. And we're going to see the upside down road to glory. The unexpected king, the universal kingdom, and the upside-down road to glory. First, the universal king. Look again at verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this passage is sometimes called the triumphal entry, which is kind of ironic because it's actually not that triumphal. I mean, Jesus basically has to borrow some guy's donkey as he's coming into Jerusalem. If he's a conquering king, he should have his own horse or his own chariot. This would kind of be like the sons of anarchy rolling into town on mopeds. This is not the ride you're expecting from a king. But Jesus is going to show us that he is a different kind of king. And so he intentionally rides in on a donkey because a donkey is a beast of burden. The donkey was a symbol of peace, not war. It was a symbol of servanthood, not domination. See, Jesus isn't merely riding in as the conquering king. He's riding in as the suffering servant. Now, John tells us that all of this took place the week of Passover. And if you were a Jewish person living at the time of Jesus, Passover was the holiest time of the year. It was the day that the people of Israel celebrated the fact that God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. God, in the book of Exodus, delivers the people of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and he sends all these plagues on the Egyptians, and he commands Pharaoh, let my people go. Over and over again, let my people go, and over and over and over again, Pharaoh refuses. So finally, God says, I'm going to send one final plague. I'm going to send the angel of death who is going to kill the firstborn of the Egyptians. And he tells the people of Israel, you need to slaughter a lamb and you need to put the blood on the doorposts of your house so that when the angel of death goes through the land, he will literally pass over your homes. And everyone who is covered in the blood of the lamb will be saved. That's the background for this celebration. God delivers his people through the blood of the land. And that should tip us off to the way that Jesus is going to deliver his people. The king is coming to deliver his people. He is coming to inaugurate his kingdom, but he is not going to do it by slaughtering his enemies. He is going to do it by being slaughtered for them. Because Jesus isn't just coming into Jerusalem as the king. He is coming in as a sacrifice. The conquering king is the sacrificial lamb. That's the background against which Jesus comes into Jerusalem. He's coming in at the time of Passover. And you can understand why the people would have been excited about a king, especially at a time like this, because they're celebrating the fact that God has delivered their ancestors from Egypt. And they're thinking, maybe God's going to do it again. Maybe God is going to deliver us from Rome. And so Jesus steps into the story and he rides into Jerusalem and they hear about all these things that he's done. They've heard that he's proclaiming the kingdom of God. They've heard about all these miracles. They heard that he even raised a man from the dead. And so they flood into the streets and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But the fact is that Jesus was not the kind of king that they were expecting they were expecting a great national military conquering warrior. That, that's why they wave palm branches. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Like, why did they wave palm branches? Did, did they just think it'll look cool, like doing the wave at a football game? Well, the palm branch really shows the kind of king that they were expecting, because at the time of Jesus, the palm branch was a symbol of Jewish nationalism little historical background here. Second century BC, Israel was under the control of the Greeks. 
And there's this guy who comes along named Judas Maccabeus, and he leads this rebellion, and he drives the Greeks out of Israel. And when he drove the Greeks out of Israel, the Jewish nation began printing their own money again. And on their currency, they printed palm branches. So the palm branch became one of the symbols of Jewish national identity at the time of Jesus. And so that's what the crowd is hoping that Jesus is going to do. They're hoping that maybe he's going to be another Judas Maccabeus. Maybe he's going to be a military savior who's going to, who's going to raise an insurrection and who's going to ride into Jerusalem, who's going to conquer and drive out the Romans. They were expecting a conquering king. And in one sense, they were right. Jesus is the king, but he's not the kind of king that they were expecting. Jesus is going to conquer, but he's not going to conquer in the way that they expect. They expected a triumphant warrior, and what they got instead was a suffering servant. They expected a general on a white horse. Instead, they got a servant riding on a donkey. Now, let me ask you today, what about you? What kind of king are you expecting? What kind of savior are you waiting for? See, odds are is that if you're sitting there listening to a sermon, you're going to say that you trust in Jesus. But these crowds would have said the same thing. They welcomed Jesus as king. They were trusting in Jesus, but they weren't trusting in the real Jesus. They were trusting in their idea of Jesus. And so for, for people sitting in church or listening to a sermon online, the question is not, are you trusting in Jesus? The question is, which Jesus are you trusting in? Are you trusting in the real Jesus? Are you trusting in the Jesus of your own imagination? Are you trusting in the Jesus who plays by your rules and meets all your expectations? Or are you trusting in the Jesus who shatters your paradigms and blows away your expectations. The Jesus the crowd was trusting in was simply a means to an end. He was their ticket to military victory. He was their ticket to political power. So when he says things like, my kingdom is not of this world, when he doesn't fit into their mold, when he takes the road of humility and suffering, they turn on him, and they reject him, and they crucified him. Which Jesus are you trusting in? Maybe you're like the crowds. Maybe for you, Jesus is a political savior or a social liberator. And so when you see how messed up the world is, when you see injustice and oppression that still plague our world, you wonder whether Jesus is really the king. Maybe for you, Jesus is a means to the good life. He's your ticket to physical health and financial prosperity. So when you lose your job or you get sick, you wonder whether Jesus is really the king. Maybe for you, Jesus is just your ticket to a happy family or thriving relationships. You come to him to make all your relationships healthy. So when your marriage falls apart or when your kids go off the rails, or you wait and you wait and you wait and you never meet that special someone, you doubt whether he's really the king. Listen, friends, Jesus does not conform to our expectations. Jesus does not play by our rules. And if he is simply a means to an end for you, if you're coming to him to get something else, you will always come away disappointed. Because even if you do get those things, it'll never be enough. Perfect families and perfect jobs and perfect health and perfect relationships can never perfectly satisfy us. The only thing that can perfectly satisfy us is a perfect Savior. 
Jesus is not the kind of king that the crowds were expecting, and he might not be the kind of king that you and I are expecting. But he is exactly the kind of king that we need. He is not the king who meets our expectations. He is the king who is so much better than everything we ever dared to expect. He turns our expectations upside down. He rides in as a king, but he takes the role of a servant seated on a donkey. He comes to conquer, but he conquers through service and love and suffering and sacrifice. The true king is bold and courageous. He's a fierce warrior who can look death in the eye, but he is also meek and humble and gentle and lowly. He's a servant who lives and leads and loves for the good of his people. His eyes are the first to flash with anger in the face of injustice, and they're the first to well with tears in the face of heartache. That's the kind of king we find in Jesus. And that's the kind of person he wants to make you. He wants to make you a person like him, a person whose life is infused with courage and humility, with justice and mercy. See, if we're honest with ourselves, we all naturally tend toward one side or the other. Some of us find it natural to be bold and courageous. We like to stand up in the face of opposition. We like to think of ourselves as swimming against the tide. But that can so easily turn into belligerence and arrogance. On the other hand, some of us naturally tend to be more gentle. We, we, we find it easy to serve and to give, but so often what happens is that warps into fear and passivity. See, depending on how you're wired, you're probably wired either to be a wimp or a jerk. You, you tend either to be a lion or a lamb. But Jesus is both. Jesus is the lion and the lamb. Jesus is able to hold those two sides together in a way that we have never seen. I mean, read the history of the world. You will not find a man who so boldly and courageously spoke the truth, and yet who so humbly and lovingly served the very people who denied the truth. You won't find a man so committed to the glory of God, and at the same time so committed to the good of other people. You will not find a God who dies for his people. You'll find lions, you'll find lambs, but you won't find a lion who's a lamb. You won't find a conquering king who's also a suffering servant. This is not the kind of king that we expect, but this is the kind of king that we need. He doesn't meet our expectations. He is better than our expectations. The crowds were expecting a king. They got a completely different kind of king. And because Jesus is a different kind of king, He's bringing in a different kind of kingdom. They were expecting a national king with a national kingdom. What they got was a universal king with a universal kingdom. That's the second reason this is the week that changed the world, because Jesus is bringing in a universal kingdom. Look at verse 17. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now this passage gives us such a fascinating glimpse into the, into the human heart. 
We, we saw this passage in, in John chapter 11 a few weeks ago. Remember, Jesus had this friend named Lazarus, and Lazarus dies, and he's buried. He's in the tomb for four days, and four days later, Jesus stands up and literally says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus literally comes out of the tomb. And many of these Pharisees, many of these religious leaders saw it happen. They saw a dead man walk out of the grave. But how do they respond? Do they follow Jesus? Do they listen to Jesus? Do they submit to Jesus as king? No, they start plotting to kill Jesus. Why? I mean, I mean, how can you see a man raise someone from the dead and then try to kill him? It's because they felt their power slipping away. The people started following Jesus instead of following them. And the Pharisees were so obsessed with holding on to their own power that they ignored the reality of the resurrection. And some of us are just like them. See, for some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, what really keeps us from following Jesus is not the evidence about Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, for many of us, what keeps us from following Jesus is this obsession we have with holding on to our own power. I don't want to give Jesus control over my money. I don't want to give Jesus control over my body. I don't want to give Jesus control over my relationships. I don't want to give Jesus control over my religion. What is it for you? Because whatever it is that you're holding on to, whatever it is that is keeping you from trusting Jesus and following him, whatever it is that you're afraid to give up, that's what's going to keep you from the reality of the God who raises the dead. The Pharisees say the world is going after him. Now, the Pharisees got a lot of things wrong about Jesus, but they got one thing right about Jesus. The world was going after Jesus. Because look what happens in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So the Pharisees were right about one thing. The world is going after Jesus. And not just the Jewish world, the whole world. Even these Greeks, even these non-Jews are going after this Jewish Messiah. See, God's heart from Genesis to Revelation has always been for all people. The scriptures promised this time when God would bring people of every tribe and tongue and nation to worship him. And that's what's happening here. These Greeks have come up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple, but when they get there, they are not content just to go into a physical building. They're not content just with some religious practices. There is only one thing that will meet their need. There is only one way they will ever encounter the one true God. They say, we want to see Jesus. We want to see Jesus. So friends, some of you today are settling. You're settling for a religious ritual. You're settling for a religious performance, but you've never encountered Jesus. You've never met Jesus. You've never really seen Jesus. And Jesus wants to show himself to you today. And what shatters their paradigms is that here Jesus isn't just showing himself to Jewish people. He is building a universal kingdom. A people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the goal of history. That's the plan of God. That is the whole trajectory toward which God is moving human history. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what God is doing. 
And now the king steps into the story and he is bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth. And these Greeks, these non-Jews from other nations come seeking Jesus. And look what Jesus says, verse 23. And Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the son of God, the son of man rather, to be glorified. Now, this is really important because if you've read the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about the hour all over the place. And he says over and over again, the first 12 chapters of the Gospel of John, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. But here in John 12, these Greeks come up to Jesus and Jesus says, now my hour has come. He says, this is the whole point of life. This is why I'm here. I came to establish a universal kingdom. See, friends, Jesus didn't just come to teach us how to be good people. He didn't just come to teach us how to play well with others. He came to inaugurate a universal kingdom. He came to die and to rise again to redeem a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is the point of Jesus' story. And that's the point of our story. That's why this is the week that changed the world. If Jesus had simply been a Jewish messianic leader, he would have not even been an obscure footnote in the pages of history. But he is not a national king of a national kingdom. He's a universal king of a universal kingdom. That's why we're worshiping here to him here today. Because he has brought us into his universal kingdom. And now he sends us out to advance that kingdom, to invite people from every conceivable background into his kingdom. He is drawing the world to himself. Jesus has drawn us to himself. And now he wants to use us to draw others to himself here in Chautauqua County and to the ends of the earth. Because Jesus is the rightful king of Fredonia and Fallujah. Jesus is the rightful king of Dunkirk and Dublin. Jesus is worthy of our worship, and Jesus is worthy of their worship. This unexpected king came to inaugurate a universal kingdom. And how does he do it? How does he bring in his kingdom? He does it through the upside-down road to glory. The upside-down road to glory. Verse 23 and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, we need to understand what Jesus means here when he says that he's the Son of Man. The Son of Man is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Read it when you have time. But, but, but Daniel says, I saw this vision. And I saw the Ancient of Days, and, and I saw this one like a Son of Man. And, and the Ancient of Days gave him a kingdom. And so what God is saying in this vision is he is saying, I'm going to bring my kingdom to earth. And there's going to be a human being. There's going to be one like a son of man who's going to be the anointed king. And I'm going to declare that he is the king of the universe and he will have a universal kingdom that will never fall. And Jesus steps into the story and Jesus says, that's me. I am the son of man. I'm the king and the hour is here and it's time for me to receive my kingdom. It is time for me to receive the throne that the father has given me. But Jesus does not take the throne in the way that we expect. His path to the throne is completely upside down. Look how he's glorified. Look at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The Son of Man will be exalted, he says. But he'll be exalted by making himself low. 
He will ascend to the throne, but he will ascend to the throne by first putting his life on the sacrificial altar. He will be lifted up, but he'll be lifted up by being lifted up on a cross. So the crowds were expecting a king who would crush his enemies, but this king will be crushed for his enemies. This king will die in their place to set them free from their greatest enemy. See, friends, the Bible teaches that we are all held under the power of sin and death. We have all rebelled against God. We have all tried to be our own gods. We have all set ourselves up as enemies of God, and we deserve his judgment. And so if the king simply came in to crush his enemies, we would be in trouble because that would mean that he came to crush us. But thank God that's not what he did. The king didn't come to crush us. The king came to be crushed for us. He died in our place. He bore the wrath that we deserve to bear. He lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He rose again, conquering sin and death, so that if we trust in him, our sins are forgiven, and he makes us right with God, and he promises, I will raise you up on the last day. And he says, I'm coming again to set all things right and to make all things new. He was crushed for his enemies so that he could liberate his enemies from their greatest enemy. His way to the throne is completely upside down. And if you trust him, he will turn your life upside down as well. He will set you on the road to glory. He will set you on the way to greatness. But the road to glory, the road to greatness, is not the road our world conditions us to take. The world tells us that the road to glory is the road of looking out for ourselves. Jesus tells us that the road to glory is the road of looking out for others. The world tells us that the road to glory is the road of comfort. Jesus tells us that the road to glory is the road of the cross. The world tells us that the road to glory is the road of taking from others. Jesus tells us that the road to glory is the road of laying down our rights and our privileges and maybe even our very lives for others. The world tells us that the road to glory is the path of upward mobility. Jesus tells us that the road to glory is the path of downward mobility. Look what he says in verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The what in the world does that mean? What does it mean to hate your life? Does that mean we should just have a miserable attitude all the time? Does it mean that Christianity is just some joyless existence where, where we suffer now so that we get heaven when we die? Let me say as emphatically as I can, nothing could be further from the truth. God wants us to have joy. Jesus died so that we could have the joy of knowing him from all eternity. So for the Christian, hating our lives doesn't mean that we're miserable. In fact, it means the exact opposite. It means that we have a joy that nothing in this life can take away because it means that our joy is not grounded in this life. Our joy is grounded in Christ because Christ is our life. It means that Jesus died and rose again to give us himself. And if we have Christ, we can gladly lose all things. It means that if necessary, we choose Jesus over jobs, 
and families and acceptance and social capital and pleasure and life itself. It means that knowing the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent infuses our lives with such joy and such meaning that even if we follow him to the cross, we follow him rejoicing. Now, friends, that's not just metaphorical speech there. This was a reality for the early Christians. This was a reality for the apostles. This has been a reality for Christians throughout church history. And it is still a reality for many of our brothers and sisters throughout the world today. They have loved Jesus so much. They have found such joy in Christ that they have gladly laid down their lives for him. History is filled with accounts of men and women, nursing mothers, even children sometimes, who went to their deaths with joy, who praised God in the gulag and the concentration camp, who were heard singing as they were fed to the lions. Let me ask you, do you have that kind of joy? Do you have that kind of joy that can face the lions with singing? So the fact is, friends, we will face death. Every single one of us will face death in some time, in some way. And if our joy is just wrapped up in this life, then we lose it. But if your joy is wrapped up in something bigger than this life, if you have Christ, you can face anything that life or death throws at you with singing. Because no matter what comes after you, it only brings you closer to Jesus. And Jesus is worth it. And that's not just true of physical death. That's true of metaphorical death as well. That's true of the death of our hopes and dreams. Some of us know what it's like to experience that. You know what it's like to experience the death of your hopes and dreams. You know what it's like to experience the death of your marriage, or the death of your friendship, or the death of your career dreams, or the death of the way that you thought life was going to turn out from you. And knowing Jesus doesn't just take away all the pain, but it means that he is with us in the midst of the pain. He's not just the king. He's the king who suffered and died, who suffered with us and for us, who laid down his life in order to give us life. And so we can sing. Even through the tears, we can sing. Even when we are so heartbroken that we can't even take a breath, we can sing because he's with us. Because he's for us. Because nothing can separate us from his, from his love. That mean, that's what it means to hate your life in this world in order to gain eternal life. It means that you have a joy that nothing in life or death can take away from you. And that's really why this is the week that changed the world. It wasn't about a political triumph. It wasn't about a military victory. It wasn't about a social movement. It was about a change in the lives of billions of men and women all over the earth. And it's about the change that can take root in your life as well. Jesus is the king we need. He is the king who lays down his life for his people. He's even the king who lays down his life for his enemies. And he doesn't just lay down his life for us. He teaches us to lay down our lives for others. That's what he says in verse 26. Look what he says. He says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. Follow you where, Jesus? Follow me to the cross. That's where Jesus is going in this section of the Gospel of John. He's going to the cross. He says, 
follow me by loving the Father and loving people so much that I lay down my life for them. See, friends, that whole lion and the lamb thing that we talked about, the fact that Jesus brings courage and meekness together like no one else, he wants to create that in your life as well. He wants you to make you the kind of person who can fearlessly speak the truth and boldly face death, and yet who can do it with humility and gentleness and mercy and love. He wants your life to be marked by true greatness. He wants your life to be marked by the cross. That's where the true world-changing power of Christianity lies. It lies in the hearts and the lives of men and women who have been loved by Jesus and who now go out and love others as Jesus has loved them. It lies in people who have been loved sacrificially and now who love others sacrificially. It lies in the fact that Jesus has made us right with God and has placed his spirit inside of us and now sends us out with the good news that in Christ, God is reconciling the world to himself. And it lies in the hope that one day Jesus will return. And when he does, he will set all things right and he will make all things new. See, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday. But one day he's going to come back riding on the clouds. He was crushed that first week, but when he returns, he will crush sin and evil and death itself. And when he does, we who trust in him will join with people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the universal people of this unexpected king, and we will cry out in one voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So my prayer for you this week is that you would really see Jesus. Like like those Greeks in this passage, that you would really see Jesus, that you would really meet Jesus, that you would really encounter Jesus, and that Jesus would change everything for you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know that you are the rightful king who has sent Christ to bring your kingdom to earth. And Father, so often we, we want Jesus to play by our rules, or to live up to our set of expectations. But Jesus, you are so much better than anything else that we expect. You are so much better than, than, than all of the paradigms and all of the rules that we try to make you play by. And so I pray that we would see you. I pray by your spirit that you would show us the beauty of who you are and that you would, that you would teach us to follow you on the road to the cross and the road to glory. You're worthy of our worship. You're worthy of the worship of all people. And so we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and truth now. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.